Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of the EvokeCast. Uh, I'll be your host today, Larry Goldie, one of the coaches here at Evoke. And as part of our summit series, today I'm joined by our coach, Leif Whitaker, to talk about a mountain that is near and dear to both of our hearts, where we've spent many, many hundreds of days, uh, right here in the Northwest Mount Baker. So we train a lot of athletes that are climbing Mount Baker, and for a lot of people starting their mountaineering careers, Mount Baker is an excellent first big peak to learn some skills and cut your teeth on. Uh, it comes in as Washington's third highest mountain at 10,781 feet. Uh, native term is Comacolchen, which has gotten popular. Uh, in recent years by a lot of people. And after Mount Rainier, it is the heavily, most heavily glaciated mountain in Washington state. Leif, you want to tell us a little bit about the time that you have spent on Mount Baker? Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Larry. And it's great to join you here today and share some stories and knowledge about Mount Baker, one of my all-time favorite mountains. Um, I started climbing on Mount Baker. I think my first climb on Baker was in 2003. Uh, I was fortunate to grow up in Washington State. And so Baker was one of those mountains that was uh, the first peak I wanted, one of the first peaks I wanted to climb. And you talked about those major glaciers. And I remember my first trip up there, I forgot a warm hat and ended up summiting in like a sun cap in a whiteout. And my first five summits, I think, of Mount Baker were all in a whiteout. And I sort of thought I was cursed on that mountain. But finally, on my sixth summit, I had a view and it was crystal clear and dead calm on the top. And it just took my breath away. And I fell in love with it at that moment. After my first climb of Mount Everest in 2010, I had the opportunity to become a climbing ranger on Mount Baker, working for the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, my friend Brandon was, was up there as a climbing ranger, and he needed a climbing partner. So they were looking for a second climbing ranger. And, uh, and so I started working up there in the summer of uh, 2011 and spent 10 years working up there as a ranger, also having Glacier Peak in our jurisdiction and just really fortunate to have had that job to be paid to, to go outside and protect a wilderness and, um, you know, watch sunrises and sunsets uh, from beautiful campsites and things like that. So I, I just, yeah, I love Mount Baker and, and think it's a wonderful, wonderful mountain. I'm excited to talk about it today. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, something you just said brought up. Uh, interesting point in my mind that while the bulk of Mount Baker is in the wilderness, there is an oddly placed triangle on the south side of the mountain that is non-wilderness, and uh, there'll be snow snowmobiles up there in the winter. To the best of my knowledge, it's the only volcano that has snowmobile access on it in the state. Is that right? I believe so. And yeah, that's the national recreation area that you're talking about on the south side of Mount Baker that 
uh, touches the Easton Glacier and the Squawk Glacier and is accessed primarily from Schreiber's Meadows Trailhead. And we have snowmobilers up there uh, usually until uh, oftentimes until the beginning of June, if there's enough snow low at lower elevation. Uh, these days, sometimes the snowmobiles get shut down a little earlier than that. But um, there's were seasons early on in my career where we'd be skiing down to the trailhead in July, actually. Yeah. And and so, um, yeah, that that area presents some interesting user conflicts, I think, because you have mountaineers, you have backcountry skiers, and then you also have snowmobilers who are all utilizing the same area, the same access points and trails. Um, and yeah, it is, it is unique, I think in that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, still a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, so yeah. And I mean, obviously so much wilderness on the mountain, it's easy if you're not interested in having any motorized conflict or even, uh, visually, you know, seeing snowmobilers around, you can always go to the north side of the mountain or some of the much less frequently climbed parts of the mountain. But it, it is a little unusual that way. And I've, and this triangle of national recreation area on the mountain, to be clear, is not marked or flagged in any way. So, uh, you know, you see snowmobiles that stray beyond where they're allowed to go i've seen snowmobiles on the very summit of the mountain which in and of itself is quite an impressive feat to ride a sled up the roman wall but uh you know with modern technology and skilled riders certainly doable nowadays where i think you know when those laws went into effect the technology snowmobiles just physically couldn't do it Absolutely. i'm curious uh before we go further, did, have you, did you ever have to pull a snowmobile out of a crevasse as a ranger up there? Oh, man. Uh, there are a few snowmobiles down in the bottom of crevasses, and even one that melted out at the terminus of the glacier in pieces, you know, in just chunks of an old sled that had traveled all the way down the mountain from wherever it was lost. And we, you know, we found all these rusted mangled pieces of an old sled uh pretty incredible and and no idea how long it it was there when it was lost um wow. but you know there are there are a few instances where new nice sleds were lost in enormous crevasses and unable to be retrieved um like you said i often saw tracks up on uh, up on the mountain and up all the way to the summit. Uh, and that that wedge of National Recreation Area it does go quite high. It goes almost up to Sherman Crater at 9,600 feet. Um, so it's not too much farther to the summit, but it's also one of the steepest sections up the Roman Wall and things like that. So yeah, it's it's always a little unnerving to see sled tracks on the top of the mountain. And I could talk a lot about a lot of interactions with the snowmobile community up there. Um, you know, me trying to chase down snowmobilers on backcountry skis and things like that, which is like good luck. Um, yeah. But one of the one of the I kind of most intense rescue 
scenarios that I had on Mount Baker happened on my very first weekend of work as a climbing ranger, literally my first weekend. And Brandon and I skinned up the glacier. We were a little bit slow getting out of the gates that morning and camped lower on the mountain than we typically would. We camped at a place called Peanut Knob, which snowmobilers will know, but it's partway down the Rocky Creek drainage uh, below Sandy Camp where we would normally camp to climb. And we ended up going to the summit the next day and skiing down the Easton route. And we were skiing down and below Sandy Camp in that Rocky Creek drainage and came around a corner and saw an accident scene with with snowmobilers. And in that area, there are these rollovers where uh, a rollover is like this progressively steeper slope that when you're on the top of it, you can't really see what's in front of you because uh, it steepens and steepens. So you're kind of rolling over it, trusting that there's going to be snow there. And on almost all of those rollovers, there's ton in that drainage. It's no problem. You can roll right over with your sled. But one of those in the summer is actually a waterfall. And so it's a very steep cliff and uh, a snowmobiler had ridden over this rollover and not known that there was this hole in the snowpack and had fallen into this hole about 50 feet to the bottom of this hole and was stuck down there underneath the waterfall being pummeled by the water pinned down there against the rock and between the rock and the snow and uh we just happened to ski down and off the summit and they saw our uniforms and you know asked for screamed and said come help us and uh, we had our climbing rope and, you know, Brandon was a hero that day, heroically went down into that hole and rigged up the uh, the, the woman who had fallen down there who was unable to to get out herself. And, um, you know, I set up anchors on the top and um, we were able to extract her from the hole eventually with the help of a lot of people and get her out. And um, it was it was pretty amazing. And uh, she started, you know, coming back to life. She was quite blue, like hypothermic. She had been under the water for 45 minutes when we found her and, and she started coming back and, and being more responsive and her vitals started improving. Uh, and then we had a helicopter rescue, but the thing was, there was a, there was a rescue on Mount Shuxon the same day. Uh, and so the normal rescue, that we would get on Mount Baker would be from Whidbey Island Naval Air Station, but they were occupied on Mount Shuxon. So we got a helicopter from the U.S. Coast Guard out of Port Angeles, a Marine helicopter. And they came up to about 6,000 feet where this accident was and uh, were heavy on fuel and so could not even hover uh, they're used to being at sea level. Uh, and so the altitude was a problem for their helicopter. And so they hovered there for, you know, an hour, just circling, burning fuel until they oh. could, until they could lower a litter and, uh, a swimmer, you know, the guy that would jump into the water to help someone out. And this guy stepped out onto the glacier in his full sw- diving setup, you know, like wow. he was supposed to jump into the water and he had no, I, I mean, he, you know, he was, his eyes were opened way wide. He didn't know where he was. And we walked him over and 
uh, we rigged up the the victim and she got lifted up along with the swimmer and, and taken to St. Joe's and she made a full recovery and it was an amazing thing. Um, and then the, the kind of the, the, uh, the end of that story is that a few weeks later, Brandon and I were climbing on the opposite side of the mountain and we see a group of military looking fellas climbing up and we stop and talk to a lot of the, the climbers who were going up and we just connected eyes with this one guy and it was the swimmer from the oh. helicopter. And he said, nice. Hey, great job on that rescue. A couple of weeks ago, guys, we, uh, we told our boss, if we're going to be doing rescues on the glacier, we better learn about mountaineering. So they signed up for a mountaineering course and all went and, and climbed Mount Baker after that rescue. But, um, that's great. Yeah, just, just a, a wild story. And that, you know, my first weekend of work, I was kind of like, Oh my God, is it like this every weekend up here? Is this, <laughs> is this, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the North side of the mountain in my mind is kind of notorious. There's that one moat that opens up below the hogs back where, it's exactly as you're describing. You're below the glacier. So many people will start glissading down and you go over this blind roll and there's a moat that opens and you get trapped beneath the waterfall. And I think over the years, quite a few people have been killed right there. I remember yes. we had a guide there uh, guiding a North Ridge trip. Well, it was probably 10 years ago now. And uh, he did the climb, came back to camp. There was a nice couple camped right near him that had also climbed the North Ridge that day, said they seemed really competent. And the next morning, they're all hiking out, and the, they were kind of in a cloud. It wasn't, you know, super stormy, but, you know, Mount Baker being one of the wettest places on Earth, uh, you're often in a cloud up there. And so visibility was really limited. And they, uh, the guide and his guests continued down. And when they got on the trail, they saw the husband there saying, hey, have you seen my wife? Like we started down a little while ago and, uh, you know, I can't find her. And, you know, they described the scene. They started glissading down. He thought that somehow she had gotten in front of him. And, you know, would just wait when they hit the trail. But here he is on the trail and she's not waiting there. And so they started looking and sure enough, she had fallen into that moat and uh, yeah, was killed. And I know, you know, that's sadly the case with many people over the years. And now the last time I was up there in the spring, the Forest Service has been, the climbing rangers presumably have been putting some big netting up across the top of that because you can't see it from above uh, and you feel like we're off the glacier you know we don't have crevasse hazard anymore so oftentimes people are not roped and they're willing to glissade uh, i imagine yeah were you involved with some rescues over there you know that i remember that that moment and i was on the opposite side of the mountain at, at that time and so we weren't able to respond to that um yeah. but I, i'm glad you brought it up because i think most of the accidents and rescues that i would see up on mount baker were often after people had gotten off the route or before they had gotten on the climbing route and 
in the spring, it can be really treacherous as things melt out around rocks and logs and river crossings and other obstacles. And oftentimes the snowpack is melting out from below. So you, you can look at something and it can appear like it's fully covered with snow and it's a nice thick coverage and I can just step right on that. But especially on some of the creek crossings, when you look at it from below, no, it, it's extremely thin in places. And we've had people that, you know, step through the snow, fall into creek drainages. That accident you described was one of the more memorable ones because, like you said, they were very experienced mountaineers. They had climbed a more technical route on the mountain and been off the glacier. It's like you think you're safe. You're on your way down and you're glissading down this drainage. And, you know, there's this just little crack that opens up there at a certain time of year. And once the snowpack's gone, it's like a 50 foot waterfall. And you realize, oh, like there's a real hazard there. And so, yeah, that was a, that was a really unfortunate one, but um, yeah, I just say for folks that are headed up there in the early season, if you're backcountry skiers, really be aware of some of those hazards because um, don't let your guard down when you get off the glacier, there's still a lot that can happen up there. Um, and so, you know, make sure you're, you're being aware of all those, those different hazards, especially that drainage right below Hogsback camp, where I believe it's actually the uh, the Bellingham Mountain Rescue Council that installs that fencing okay. to mark yeah. that hazard. Um, so, uh, and yeah, that's probably prevented some folks, some other folks from from descending that route as well. So, yeah. but yeah, it's like be careful in that shoulder in that early season on on Baker. Um, watch out for that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's a good segue to talk about some of the various routes on the mountain. Uh, we've, we've kind of alluded to a couple, but uh, in terms of standard routes on the mountain, you, there's a, the standard route on the south side, which is the Easton Glacier, standard route on the north side, which is the Coleman Deming. Uh, they both have pros and cons for sure. Uh, Personally, I've always been a fan of the north side of the mountain uh, for a few reasons. I really enjoy the more complete wilderness feel over there. And then, uh, you know, it's called the Coleman Deming Route. And you climb the Coleman Glacier up to a high saddle. And then you kind of wrap around onto a more you know, south-southwesterly aspect of the mountain and get on the upper Deming Glacier into the Roman Wall. And so it's a little more of a tour of the mountain uh, and, and no more technically challenging than the standard route on the south side, but I think a little more interesting, uh, and, you know, arguably a little more objectively dangerous having to walk under Colfax Peak, uh, which, you know, for some people is a little more hazard than they are comfortable with. Uh, you know, yeah. at, at some point I would love to touch on how the mountain has been changing over time with climate change. And, you know, in my I think of it as a short amount of time geologically. I've been climbing that mountain for 
30 years. But uh, the amount of change I've seen in 30 years is dramatic up there. And I know some people feel, you know, things like Colfax, there's a giant uh, Serac that calves off with some regularity a few times a year with, you know, can drop house size chunks of ice right onto the climbing route, the main climbing route on that side of the mountain. And certainly, you know, if you're there at the time, it could be catastrophic, but yeah. you know, 99% of the time, everything's fine. And if you just hustle through that section, your exposure is minimized. No, I'm Where's glad not? you touched on that because that area has always scared me. Um, and it's gotten worse and worse uh, in recent years where um, you do see pretty frequent, you know, breaking breakup happening there. And you'll hear it talking and moving sometimes as you're going beneath it. And as a climbing ranger, we spend so much time up there and yourself as a guide, you've probably walked underneath that thing, you know, many, many times. And you're it's like you said, I please don't take a break there. Please don't sit underneath that thing and have lunch. Just move through it as fast as you possibly can and get get out of way of that thing because um I've always been worried about that area because it can go big and it'll send a powder cloud right across the climbing route and huge blocks of ice there. So um like yeah like i've even seen people camped close enough to that and given them a stern talking to have said man what are you doing here there's you see all this stuff hanging over your head like let's 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 move your camp you know hundreds of yards away from this because this is a really really dangerous objective hazard um so yeah move through there quickly um spend as little time underneath that that hazard as you can speed is safety in that area for me as a climbing ranger i joke like about the climbing ranger profession people say like what does a climbing ranger do that's like what is that job title and i think a better job title would be mountain janitor because uh -huh. <laughs> we're always uh cleaning up after folks trying to protect the wilderness i have some very graphic stories that i won't relate here about cleaning up human waste on the mountain but I always felt like that type of work was making a deposit in my karmic piggy bank so that if I protected Mount Baker uh maybe you know Colfax Peak wouldn't break off right when I was underneath it uh it would it would protect me a little for for keeping the mountain clean uh but nice. yeah it's it's a scary scary spot and I I think but I agree with you about the north side uh, I love the north side. The Coleman Demings is a beautiful route. And the sunsets over there, too, are are unmatched. Yeah. Unmatched sunsets. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and while we're on the north side of the mountain, I think that, you know, another route that's worth a little discussion is the North Ridge. And I think uh, fairly unique for a volcano route to have uh, sort of a nice little step up in difficulty so you're not just walking most of the common routes on these volcanoes you're, you're roped up because of the possibility of falling in a crevasse um, you have an ice axe in your hand and likely crampons on your feet but the movement is not overly technical 
even the steepest parts, you're still walking upright. Whereas the North Ridge has some section of steep technical two-tool ice climbing. Uh, and it's relatively short, it's just a few pitches, but it's got some steep terrain leading up to it. Uh, and then a, a few crux pitches of ice and then some steeper terrain above it. And then it goes back to walking and you would descend, uh, you know, typically the Coleman Deming or the standard route. And so it's it's a great route in a lot of alpine climbers progressions. If they have more ambitious goals in the future, it's a way of, uh, you know, stepping up the technical difficulty, uh, but just in a, in a very manageable step. It's a really nice stepping stone to go, uh, you know, from one of the standard routes to something like the North Ridge before thinking about tackling, you know, a more ambitious objective somewhere up in the Alaska range or, uh, you know, potentially in the Himalaya. Absolutely. The North Ridge is such a classic and a, and a beautiful route. Um, you described it really well there. Uh, and, and it, you know, starting with some complex glacier travel on the lower Coleman to access the ridge and then those ice pitches toward the top of the router. Uh, what a position you're, you're, you're right on this, this ridge with the Roosevelt on your left side, which is a never traveled because it's such a broken up glacier. And, uh, and you're looking out at the the Coleman Icefall on your right side, the Coleman Headwall, which is another very rarely climbed route off to the right. Um, and yeah, just a, a, a beautiful route. And I, I think exactly like you said, it's that next step up in technicality, a great stepping stone to start do, doing some more technical, bigger, bigger routes sort of the equivalent of liberty ridge on mount rainier i think it's it's mount baker's liberty ridge um right and you know the other thing on the north side that you'll often see is as far as a guided trip goes is to do some ice climbing or seracking down in the lower coleman uh, there's a camp called harrison camp or colloquially it's known as Merkwood. Because uh, it's this kind of dark, uh, buggy camp down there, but you can access the lower Coleman Glacier where there's some uh, big ice towers and walls that are great for practicing ice climbing on glacial ice. And um, and so a lot of trips will kind of do a couple days of prep down there on the lower Coleman, learn some ice climbing skills down there, and then the apex of that trip would be an ascent of the north ridge um and so i think for folks who are yeah looking to take that next step up that's a great option absolutely yeah it makes me think uh you know i i don't keep track of how many times i've climbed mountains and uh you know including mount baker but i'm sure it's over a hundred and uh one of the times that really stands out for me I'm not going to remember the year, maybe 07 or 08, somewhere in there. But uh, it was a huge winter. You might remember this, actually. Um, it was a winter that uh, the that piece of terrain right above the very first stream you cross on the north side uh, 
the Forest Service had just built a new bridge and uh, across this creek. And the very next winter, a huge avalanche came down and just swept the bridge away. And so even well into summer, this was July 5th, and you could just walk, at, what, 200 feet from your car on dry ground and then get on snow and go to the summit and back on snow and I had a really fit guest and uh and we went on skis and just skinned up that creek and then Grouse got creek. up Grouse yeah. Creek thank you yeah and then traversed over to the base of the North Ridge climbed the North Ridge with skis on and then skied back down to the car you know, and all told, you know, 10 hour day and we were on dry ground for, you know, less than five minutes of the whole day. It was so fun. You're giving me chills. You're giving me chills just talking about it. That sounds like an amazing, amazing trip. I remember when that bridge got knocked out. I think that was one of my first seasons up there as a ranger and they had just built that bridge. It was like, you know, 30 grand or something. And then it, I mean, that winter and that avalanche that came down off of there was just massive. I mean, you'd see trees that were, you know, 15 inch diameter that were snapped like toothpicks from that slide. It started way up at the top of the drainage and collected all the snow on its way down. And like you said, there was snow filling up that drainage into August or, you know, like way late in the season. Um, But wow, that was what a, what a climb you had there. That was, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And I remember thinking like when this guest, he, he's a really ambitious guy and he would always like reach out to me. Hey, what are you thinking about? Do a, a one day ascent of this. And, you know, it's July and he's like wanting to climb the North Ridge and bring skis. And I was like, uh, yeah, I guess it, it might be doable. And I started doing a little research and people are like, oh, yeah, like you can get on snow right next to the trailhead. And uh, yeah, it's incredible to think that, you know, and we had, I remember coming down, it's a little firm on the Roman wall and then basically perfect corn until, you know, the last 10 minutes to the trailhead, like, you know, 6,000 feet of just the best skiing. Well, and that's a that's a great little segue because I think uh, one of the best ways to travel on Mount Baker is on skis in the early season if conditions are in for it. If you have the competency on skis, it's a it's a wonderful. I mean, it's a great skiing objective, ski mountaineering objective. Um, and you know, I want to make sure folks know Mount Baker is not Mount Baker ski area. Uh, the ski area is actually more on Mount Shuxon, really. It should be yeah, called Mount Shuxon. It really ski is. Area. Agreed. <laughs> uh, but can't even see Mount Baker from most parts of the ski area. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, it's it's not like Mount Hood or something like that. But um, but you know, like you said in the intro, Mount Baker it's a heavily glaciated peak. It can be um, technical, quite technical in certain areas. So don't underestimate it on your um, on your ski descent. Um, you need to be a really competent skier, but, um, you know, if you have that ability, it's a, it's a great ski mountaineering objective. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to be clear for 
people that aren't familiar with the ski mountaineering world, uh, typically the ski mountaineering season on a peak like Mount Baker is going to tend toward the earlier season. So my story that I just told of July is usually well past the time you would go up on a volcano with skis. It's often going to be from May until maybe sometime in June. And the main reasons for that are uh, you, you, we want to be on the glaciers when they have their absolute deepest snowpack. So crevasses are really filled in. The bridges are at their strongest. Uh, the snow is still smooth and not sun cupped. But, you know, more than anything, it's just that the, the crevasse hazard is limited. And when we travel on skis, our weight is distributed over these long boards on our feet. And so uh, the likelihood of falling in a crevasse is lessened. Uh, and that's complemented by the fact that the crevasses are really well filled in. So, uh, you know, most of the time, uh, a little asterisk there on most of the time, we're not going to be roped up when we're on skis and certainly almost never on the ski descent because that adds its own danger of trying to ski rope together with somebody. Whereas on foot, you're almost always going to be on a rope anytime you're on a glacier. So yeah, that's very, uh, very well put Larry. Um, you know, I, I think just to add to that, um, like you said, there can be a huge range of conditions in a, in a season on Mount Baker and, um, like you said, that early season is typically the best time to ski also for the reason of that. You can just be so much more efficient on the descent. You can, you know, make what would be a much longer trip if you're on foot, um, into a much more efficient climb. And often you can ski all the way to the trailhead or only have to walk a short distance on, on dry ground. Um, and, and oftentimes on Baker too, that the, the roads, because they do get snowmobile, um, impact that snowmobiles can kind of pack down the snow and means that the snow doesn't melt out as fast on the roads. And so sometimes you're having to park quite far down on the road, way, way, away from the trailhead and adding miles to the approach every day. Um, but, uh, but skiing is, you know, it's, it's, if you have that ability, I, I think it's a great way to go. Like you said, flotation, all those things. And I think, you know, this leads into kind of discussing some of the other routes, right? Uh, talking about the, some of the routes on the south side. So um, the two routes we we talk about mainly on the south side would be the Easton Glacier and the Squat Glacier. And I know that you spend quite a bit of time on the squawk, right, Larry? And that's, and how yeah. do you like that one as a ski mountaineer in the early season? Yeah, I I am a big fan of the squawk and it tends to be sort of my go-to for ski mountaineering and honestly, even summer mountaineering. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, hopefully I don't get strung up by the guiding community for this one, but uh I've never quite understood why Sandy Camp and the Easton Glacier is quite so popular because it's a much longer walk to get to the high camp. There are multiple challenging stream crossings in uh, in the spring as things are melting out and then well into summer, whereas the Squawk 
essentially the trail leaves it just starts climbing straight from the trailhead they share the same trailhead it's a beautiful high camp up at crag view uh, and it's a really direct route to the summit and historically it's been much less crowded than sandy camp and uh, the eastern glacier so that tends to be my go-to and oftentimes uh it, the one thing I will say is from the squawk on the descent, if you're on skis, it does involve some skiing down through uh, a little more challenging tree terrain. You're spending more time in kind of dense forest cover than you would on the Easton. And so uh, it's not uncommon. I just guided it this past spring where we went up, camped at Crag View, climbed to the summit and skied back down to camp. And then we broke camp and then just traversed over and skied out via the lower Easton and slid out that way. And on skis, like on foot, that would be this huge traverse around the mountain, whereas on skis, it's super easy. And, you know, I it's one of the things I love about ski travel is just that ability to just stand on your skis and glide across literally miles of terrain that would be so tedious to walk across. Uh, Absolutely. And I, yeah. And I agree with you about the the squawk. It's a, uh, you know, and I think the skiing from Sherman Crater down to Craigview camp is some of the better fall line skiing on the mountain. I mean, those pitches from about 9,500 down to Craigview uh, probably, 3000 ish vert of beautiful fall line skiing um couple couple crevasses in there but usually fairly straightforward early in the season and just yeah. maybe just to step back quickly and do a quick review the Coleman Deming and the Easton are the two most popular routes on Mount Baker by far they get the huge majority of the traffic on the mountain they're very similar technically they require a lot of the same demands physically and fitness wise. Um, and I think there are just very small differences between them. The squawk is in the same boat with those two. It sees less traffic for whatever reason. It just doesn't get as much traffic over there. Um, but technically fitness wise, I think those three are all quite, quite similar um climbs and descents um and you know we can talk a little bit more about the demands of that but i just wanted to kind of review those that and make sure everyone understood um understood those differences and and you know all of those three routes come quite close to each other on the final pitch toward the summit um the roman wall is the last uh section of the climb uh about say 1200 vertical um feet and you know it's quite steep there and um the squawk and the Easton meet at at sherman crater uh and the coleman deming climbs the the lookers left side the climbers left side of the roman wall and the Easton and the squawk climb the the climbers right side of the roman wall and then and then they meet up on the top so um, but yeah, those are, those are the three, I would say, sort of entry level routes on Mount Baker. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, one of the interesting things, uh, 
about the Roman wall is how much conditions and even the slope angle can change over the course of the summer. So when there's a lot of snow in the early season, the Roman wall doesn't feel all that steep. Uh, and, you know, it, it's in the neighborhood of 40 degrees, uh, but you're, you know, you're kicking in big giant steps or oftentimes there'll be a really well-established track and later in the season, as some of that seasonal snow melts off, uh, it just starts to feel steeper and steeper. And then you'll be on crampons and bare ice. And the Roman Wall is honestly one of the places that we've seen some of the most dramatic effects of climate change in the last few years, where like on the north side of the Roman Wall, or, uh, you know, there, there are these little rock bands that have melted out that you know in the 30 years i've spent on that mountain i've never seen this like it's like a full band of rock that was just never visible and you know now it's something people are dealing with almost every year and uh, you know the, the actual ascent route can be on bare ice, which, you know, when it's rock hard, bare ice, 40 or, you know, up to 45 degrees feels quite steep. Suddenly you're not just walking anymore. It's technical cramponing. And, you know, sometimes you're going to be placing ice screws or some kind of protection. Uh, so I would say the Roma wall is a good indication on the south side. There have been like literally sections where it's melted down to like rubbly dirt. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like volcanic uh, gravel. I don't know pumice. how best yeah. to describe it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it is, yeah, pumice, but. Uh, it's and, it's and, bizarre. I mean, I remember the first time that layer, whatever that gray volcanic, just like you're describing that layer of, of, rock and mud because it's all mud. wet with the glacier yeah. underneath it uh melted out i was like what is what is this i've never seen this in my life and uh it's it's very awkward it's like this muddy loose surface that you're now having to climb up on that last final pitch this is late in the season that we're describing it shows the variation seasonally that you can get on Mount Baker and how the routes become a lot more difficult. And that's with, with climate change or these changes that we're seeing on the glacier. We're certainly seeing, you know, trips lean more into the early season when there's better coverage on the glacier. And oftentimes uh, for a guided party late in the season, the technicality of what you're describing, that steep, hard ice it gets really broken up in certain sections on some of these routes too, where it just becomes like, we're just going to have to mess around too much with stuff. It's not going to be time efficient uh, to protect this well and, and travel over this safely where, you know, it, we're just not going to summit today just, just due to conditions. So yeah. if you're thinking about a trip on Mount Baker, you know, ski mountaineering early season, but even, even traditional mountaineering, you know, I'd, I'd say look to get up there a little on the earlier side than maybe traditional, you know, try to be up there in June and July. And when you get into August nowadays, it, it starts to be really broken up and messy um, with everything you're describing. 
Yeah, this has been a big topic in the guiding community because Mount Baker is such a heavily guided mountain. And, uh, you know, as guides, we're out there all the time and we're seeing these changes over the years. And it does feel like, in a lot of ways, any glacier climbing, at least here in the North Cascades, the the season is shifting earlier and earlier each year. You're able to start moving on the mountain, even without flotation, like skis or snowshoes earlier in the year. And then the route is getting into sort of late season conditions earlier and earlier. And a lot of companies are lowering their guiding ratios later in the season because it is so much more technical. You can't always take three or four people up because, you know, you're not just spread out on a rope all moving together anymore you're actually belaying some sections and uh you just can't do that with you know larger groups and then some companies are just stopping guiding altogether uh you know when it gets into really challenging later season conditions the other thing when you do get into those conditions the rock fall on the mountain really starts to increase because you know, as the glaciers melt out, all those rocks that are have been embedded in the ice and in the snow just suddenly are perched precariously. And I've had a few of those experiences the last few years where these areas where I rarely think of, you know, as being rockfall hazard, suddenly, you know, just this constant barrage of rocks as just a few years ago wasn't even... Uh, that late in the season but it was right after we had that heat dome so that must have been was that 2020 or 2021 uh where i turned around at the base of the north ridge because it was just this steady barrage of rocks coming down most of them were golf ball size, but then a few baseballs thrown in. And every now and then, you know, microwave would just come flying down. And we sat there for 40 minutes just watching this area, knowing there's a short section we needed to get through. And ultimately, I just said, like, I, you know, I, I don't like to leave my safety up to just plain luck. And we might be able to get through there. We might be fine. Or one of us might get killed. And we have no control over that right now. And so that's the other big change I've seen as we get into those later season conditions. The rock fall on these big snowy mountains suddenly becomes a real concern. Absolutely. So I think for all, all those reasons, yeah, the climbing seasons are starting to shift earlier and earlier. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And and I, I mean, I think that's a good reminder too on, on just general safety on these mountains is be aware of what's above you. You know, oftentimes we forget to look up and identify hazards that are over our head and make sure when you take your rest breaks and uh, when you group up for lunch and things like that, that you're in a spot where you are out of the way completely of that overhead objective hazard, that hang fire. Um, cause that you have that on the standard routes as well, especially later in the season. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of folks stopped in, in places where they're, they're putting themselves at risk, just sitting there. Um, yeah. so, so take a look in all directions, including above you and make sure that you're not, you know, sitting under a bunch of 
rocks that are uh, threatening to to break free. But you know, the other thing too is there's this band of sort of steeper terrain that really travels contours around the mountain at about 9,000 feet. And on the Eastern and the Squawk, that typically manifests in a very large crevasse at about that area. And I remember one year, I don't know, three, four or five years ago, where most of the guide services shut down their trips entirely because there just was not an efficient or safe way to get through there. And I remember spending time with my partner, Brandon, traveling around looking for a feasible route. And we spent an entire day going all around looking at every different angle of, of trying to get through there. And there just wasn't anything unless you were willing to, you know, rappel down into a deep crevasse and some get across the other side or, you know, do some sort of other technical work that would be just to climb Mount Baker. That's not really what you expect. Like you don't want to be getting into that on a mountain like Mount Baker. Um, so yeah, just, you know, like you said earlier and earlier now, folks are starting to lean into those earlier season um, season climbs. But then the other thing to remember is the weather can always change, especially early in the season. It's pretty unpredictable in June. We in Washington always joke it's called January because it ends up being probably snowing, cold, raining. I mean, I've had some of the worst weather in June on, on mountains ever. Uh, so you're kind of, it's, it's about threading the needle of like, we want a good weather window, but we also want good conditions on the glacier. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've spent many unpleasant nights in the mountains in January. Uh, yeah, well, that actually brings to mind, uh, maybe we shift gears a little bit and just talk about, I'm, I'm sure as a climbing ranger and now as a coach, just uh, some of the challenges that you try to counsel people about for climbing Mount Baker. And I'll just speak briefly as a guide. Uh, you know, one of the benefits of hiring a guide is that you're up there with someone who is familiar with the route and they're telling you, you know, what you should bring and they're pacing you and they know where to take breaks and safe places. And, uh, but, you know, if you go without a guide, there are some important things to be aware of. And I think you and I have probably both seen a number of areas that people commonly make mistakes uh, that, you know, potentially cost them their chance of summiting the mountain. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's very easy to underestimate Mount, Mount Baker. And one of the more common things that I see is folks that have thought, you know, it's only 10,781 feet, uh, not even an 11,000 foot peak. And, you know, if you're coming somewhere from Colorado or from Utah, it's like the ski lift goes higher than that. So right. what's the, what's the big deal? Um, but it's, it is not to be underestimated. It can be very challenging and technical and, and also just a lot of vert. Um, you know, these trailheads are usually at about 3000 or 3,500 feet. So getting up to the summit is, is seven K of vertical. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty big day. And I think for mountaineers who are intending to camp up there and spend multiple nights, 
carrying food, carrying their tents, all their clothing to stay warm, fuel, you can end up having quite a heavy pack on the approach. And I think in some ways, the approaches on these on these routes is almost more challenging because you do have a quite heavy pack. You're carrying a heavy load. The trails are usually pretty steep. They're not, you know, they're not casual walking trails. Um, on the south side, you start fairly moderately in Shriver's Meadows, but then you get into the switchbacks, getting up to more of its meadow, and you get up onto the railroad grade, which is a, a nice steep grade with a, a drop off on one side. Um, it's very picturesque and sort of spooky to look off that one edge and the trail just like is right on this ridge line with a steep drop on one side and you're carrying this heavy pack and, you yeah. know, maybe you're walking in your, in your beefy mountaineering boots. Um, and, and that can be a, a push on that first day, just the approach, and then, you know, you're expected, depending on the schedule and what trip you're on, to get yourself rested, fueled, get your tent and camp all set up, uh, get some food in you and try to fall asleep early because you're going to be getting up for an alpine start to then go summit. So you're often only getting, you know, a couple hours of sleep uh, if if you're lucky and then you're having to get up and go for the summit from camp and knock out another 4,000 vert or something like that from camp. Yeah. So it's kind of like those two things back to back can really sneak up on people. And I think it's really easy to underestimate um, the mountain. And it's like after that approach with that heavy pack and little sleep, oftentimes summit day, it's like, you're not feeling great. And, and, uh, and then you have, you know, a big summit day that you that you have to tangle with. So um, one thing I think is that's smart to do in your training and preparation for this, this mountain is to try to get two back-to-back -back long days of hiking. If you can, um, put some, you know, put some weight in your pack, get out and get some vertical and, and, and really just like be outdoors in the elements on your feet for a long day, back-to-back -back, two days in a row. And I think that's sort of an important prep to, uh, to you know be be ready for what you're going to experience on mount baker but yeah i think the approach is is often you know a real challenge for folks yeah it's funny you say that because uh i was thinking the exact same thing i've uh for many many climbers on that mountain the first day of getting to camp is by far the hardest day of the trip and as a guide the thing that I really try to do for most people, I'm going to have them explode their pack and I'm going to be absolutely ruthless in pulling things out of their pack that they don't need. You think about it, you're spending one or two nights up there. And as you just described, those nights can be really quite short. And so you don't need a lot of creature comforts in camp. What you need is a light pack for those many hours that you're spending lugging that thing around. And uh, the mantra we often use with our guests is ounces add up to pounds and pounds add up to pain. And uh, 
for for many people, you're not going to be able to pull something out of your pack that weighs a pound or two. You're pulling out, oh, this is a few ounces. Oh, this is a few ounces. Let's take this instead because it's a few ounces lighter. And they all add up to being able to go lighter. But I can't emphasize that enough. You, you need certain requisite equipment, uh, you know, in terms of technical equipment, your harness, your helmet, your ice axe, your crampons. And then you need clothing to be comfortable up there. And you certainly need food. And food, it should be said, is the only thing in your pack that actually gives you energy. Everything else in your pack takes away your energy. So food is not the place to save weight. But water can be a great place to save weight because there's water all over the place up there. You can fill up your water, you know, on most routes on the mountain every hour if you want to. So you don't need to carry, you know, eight pounds of water. You can just carry two pounds and fill it up every time you pass the creek. Uh, so there are a lot of little tricks like that. But I think uh, trying to go as light as you can safely go is one of the most important things. Uh, <clears throat> You know, the, the fact that the mountain is so low in elevation, I think, is a huge advantage for people because you can do a relatively rapid ascent. There's no need for really acclimatization. Very few people have any sort of altitude related issues up there. Uh, so, you know, it's a great mountain in that regard to sort of cut your teeth on mountaineering without having to really worry about uh altitude considerations yep, yep. and I, I i would just totally agree there i think it's one of the best mountains you can go to and start to learn some of the basics mountaineering skills and there are a lot of different options as far as what you can sign up for with guide services and you know we're talking about a rapid a, sort of a quicker trip where you really are just focused on reaching the summit, but there are a lot of trips where you spend, you know, six days up there learning crevasse rescue, learning ice axe techniques, crampon techniques, uh, rope work, all these sorts of things. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic mountain to do one of those sorts of courses on if you're just getting into mountaineering, um, because of, Yes, it is quite low elevation because of that. The weather tends to be a little bit warmer than, say, on a Mount Rainier. And also it's it's a little more, I would say, it's it's certainly heavily traveled, but it's different being in the National Forest um, in a wilderness, like you said, on the Coleman side in the wilderness there. Um it, it feels a little more wild. It's not quite as, you know, you're not certainly not starting on a paved path um, right. or anything like that. Like you are, you're, you're taking care of yourself for the most part and having to route find and, and do all those things. And, um, and I think for that reason, it's really appealing and it's, it's just, for anyone that's looking to get into mountaineering, I think it's the perfect first step um, to start learning these skills and then, you know, go from there to bigger peaks like Mount Rainier or more technical climbs like Mount Shuxon or something like that in the Cascades. Um, so, yeah, I, I just I think it's great. 
uh, great in that regard. And and even for folks who are non-guided and wanting to to learn about mountaineering, um, Baker's a good one to to start on. And if you have some friends who have some skills or mentors that you can learn from, um, doing that sort of thing on Mount Baker is is great. And that's kind of what for me that was my you know my progression. Um, yeah. So well, yeah, I, I recommend it. I, I would agree. Those longer trips, uh, they often do involve heavier packs on day one because you're carrying that much more food and fuel. But you also get the subsequent days where you're working on skills around camp uh, as kind of recovery from that big day before you're going to start your summit push. So if you have the time, I think that's really advantageous way to go. Along those lines, I would say, as crazy as it sounds, probably the single biggest thing that I've seen over the years that have turned people around from summiting the mountain are blisters. And uh, so it's, it comes in a couple of ways, but people that just aren't used to hiking in mountaineering boots and uh, with blisters, it's all about prevention so once you have a blister then you're just doing damage control and depending on how bad it is and where it is and how tough you are you may or may not be able to get through but if you think about climbing a mountain that's literally going to take you tens of thousands of steps and if every single step you're just getting this stabbing pain in your foot, it's going to be really hard to persevere. So I know one thing we do at Evoke is we're always coaching our athletes to get out on their training hikes in their boots and simple things like lacing your boots. Like most mountaineering boots do not need to be laced to the tippy top. You want to maintain some ankle flexibility there. And so stopping shy of the top so your ankle can flex and you can have a more natural stride can be really beneficial. Uh, something that I've become a fan of for years, I was like boots on from the car to the summit, back to the car. And I started to see it getting popular amongst guides. They would do the approach hike and approach shoes or, you know, running shoes and carry their boots. And I thought, that's ah, crazy to carry your mountain boots. And I've come 180 degrees. Yep. And now I will take approach shoes on the approaches and carry my mountain boots any day. I feel like yep. it is such a treat to like, I wear my boots on the snow and the rest of the time, I'm in really comfortable shoes. And I feel like that it's better on my feet. It gives me way more energy. Uh, I'm such an advocate of going that route nowadays. Yeah, I completely agree. I had the exact same transition, Larry, in my thinking just like that. As That's really funny because it was like, yeah, what are these people doing in sneakers on the, on these approaches? But then you try it out and, and, you know, it is kind of annoying to have to put, put your boots, strap your boots to the side of your pack, you know, a big heavy mountaineering boot certainly adds to the pack weight, but the benefit on your feet. And like a lot of these trails are really rocky. I mean, it's called Rocky Creek for a reason on the <laughs> South side. Cause it's just like the trail goes right up a bouldery Creek. And um, yeah, that can be really awkward in a steep, a stiff mountaineering boot. 
Um, but two things came to mind. One on, on this subject, I once saw a guide leading his entire team. He had like, you know, eight clients or something behind him and they were walking up the Rocky Creek drainage on the South side and he was wearing flip-flops. Whoa. <laughs> and that goes a little too far. That's uh, a bit extreme for sure. Yeah. Meanwhile, his his clients behind him have their like mountaineering boots and are clambering around <laughs> and he's he's walking in flip flops up the trail. So we definitely like I think I called the guide service and was like, hey, like not the best example to set. So I wouldn't recommend that because you're going to stub your toe or, uh, you know, tear yourself up. Uh doing that but uh funny story but the other thing that you mentioned about blisters and and you touched on it but that's a strategy tip i give to people that i coach on every mountain and the way that i've thought about it is uh self-care is team care and it's so important to first take care of yourself and make sure that you're in good condition before then trying to contribute to the team and blisters are the perfect example if you are start feeling a blister develop early on in the trip and you're self-conscious about asking the group to stop so you can adjust your boot okay now you let this blister develop it blows up and and now you're like you said suffering and in pain for the entire trip and then what what kind of a teammate are you then you know, and what, how can you contribute to the team? Then you're going to be much weaker and distracted and suffering the entire time. Whereas if you stop for three minutes, ask the team to stop and adjust your boot early on and avoid that situation or apply some moleskin or some duct tape or whatever your methodology, whatever you're using for the blisters. Now you've, now you've saved the team. You've kept, kept yourself a strong link in this chain uh and so it's like deal with that stuff don't don't hide it and just try to keep up with everyone and then have this massive blister on your foot for your whole trip so self-care is team care is something i think and it can apply in a lot of different areas no i I fully agree uh you know as guides we're always telling people if you can stop at the first sign of a hot spot that's when we can deal with it. It's easy to prevent a hot spot from becoming a blister. There's all sorts of great materials that we can put over it. But once you get to the point where it's truly a blister, you're going to be dealing with it the entire trip. And honestly, I've seen it shut down a lot of seemingly tough people. Uh, so, yeah. It, it seems like this tiny little thing, but it turns many people back from summiting that mountain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I guess the only other things I would say as far as strategy tips on Mount Baker or maybe some training tips up there um, uh, is, you know, work on your technical skills a little bit if you have the opportunity to do that before a climb i mean if you're taking a course you might not have that chance but having your like you said your pack dialed your layering system dialed um being able to move efficiently with crampons and knowing how to walk on a rope team those little details can save you so much time and energy when it comes to the summit climb. So if you have a chance to, uh, 
you know, practice those skills before your climb, especially if it's one of the faster climbs, it's definitely, definitely worthwhile and going to save you a lot of energy up there. Um, if you're a non-guided climber too, the nice thing about Baker, as opposed to many other mountains is that it's very, very accessible. There's basically no permitting. Uh, you, yeah. you just go up there and, uh, you know, you don't have to, I mean, there's a voluntary climbing registration, mostly for your safety, but, uh, in the current status on Mount Baker, it's a permit is not required to go climb it or anything. So there's very little red tape, which has its upsides and downsides. But, um, from the perspective of just the everyday climber who wants to go do something, it's pretty nice. It's a very, um, you know, place where you can very easily access and go explore and sort of um, have fun, have an adventure up there. Um, and there's many other routes too on the mountain that we haven't touched on a couple other routes that are very, you know, not nearly as popular. They see a few trips every year sort of thing. Um, but Baker has really so much to offer and a lot of different levels of difficulty. Um, and yeah, I highly recommend it for anyone that's that's looking into uh, starting their mountaineering career or just hasn't been up to the Northwest. It's such like a Northwest style peak cascade volcano. Um, so yeah, go up yeah. there and enjoy it, man. We could, I bet, I bet me and Larry could wax for a couple more hours, just telling <laughs> stories. <laughs> I spent a good chunk of my life up there. Uh, but, you know, I do think it's a really good point you make about just the lack of red tape. It really it, what it enables people is just to take advantage of a weather window when conditions are good. There's you just need to get your own personal stuff together and go, uh, which is not always the case on a lot of other mountains where you need a camping permit or a reservation. So enjoy it while that is the case because as, as we've learned in a lot of other places uh these things we take for granted as being so easy to deal with they don't always stay that way as they get more and more popular so well yeah that was great thanks for your time today leaf fun to chat thanks, about Larry. mount baker uh really is yeah absolutely um yeah, great chatting with you about it. I'm excited to hear some more stories in the future, and uh, we'll have to get up there for a ski this spring, huh? That sounds great. Would love to do that. All right. Okay. Well, thanks to everybody for tuning in to another episode of the Evoke Cast, and uh, continue to listen for our upcoming series that we're calling the Summit Series on various mountains around the world that we train a lot of athletes for their attempts on. Thanks again. Thanks, everyone.